The following is a part of the Radio Memphis On Demand service. It originally aired live on Radio Memphis and has been edited for time. Uh, they always started off like a good idea for me, and <laughs> eventually I just, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm used to doing stuff around here and lots of different stuff. Well, there's a lot of things happening here. Yeah, there is, and there always kind of has been. So when I've gone out of town, I've, I, you know, there's I've missed missed out on some stuff, and I thought, oh well, well I was out with these people doing this, and it's okay, you know. And you know, you get to see other cities and play for other crowds is is great, but you know, it's not. I'm not the guy they come to see. I'm just you know, I'm I like being a side man, and. Uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Well, yeah. Because you don't have to put up it. with all the bullshit that everybody else has to put up with. Right? Okay, as long as we can say bullshit. You can that. say whatever you, go. We can say whatever the fuck you it's want, internet Jim. internet radio. Yes, yeah. that's correct. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, uh, some things I've been just honored to do, and some I've, I've taken it because seemed like I should do it. And then, you know, I was glad when it was over, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's worth it. Did you did you ever have to do the the other thing that happens a lot with musicians around here is doing the their time on Beale Street? Well, yeah, I've played on Beale Street, uh, kind of. But as a side man, it's no big deal because you go in and you know play the gig and split. Yeah. Where a lot of guys are like, well, yeah, I'm doing five nights a week down there. Or yeah, yeah. I I used to play with Charlie Wood at King's Palace some, and that was always something to really musically to look forward to because he was a, a different kind of guy. Uh, I played bluesy stuff like like you'd expect on Beale Street, but um, uh, he was kind. He played a lot of his own music and a lot of you know Ray Charles and Mose Allison and stuff. Charlie's just great, man. He lives in England now, and uh, so we all a bunch of us horn players enjoyed playing with him uh, when he had a trio down there, just him on organ and singing, and he had a drummer, and then the. The third seat was uh, kind of a wild card. For a long time, he had Calvin Newborn. Yes. Uh, and uh, so we would sub for Calvin, I guess. And he had Fred Ford for a while, you know, wow. So uh, so we'd sub for those guys when they weren't there. And then when Charlie made a record of, of his original music, which we all loved, we all said, hey, man, I want to play on your record. So he had to have a horn section to accommodate our... I want to. I want to do that. that. I want to be. So on a that lot, point. a lot of you know records have been like, well, make sure you call me if you're going to make a record, you know. But uh, so Charlie was great for that. He kind of, a lot of people got to glom onto his glory and 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 be somebody, you know, off of it. Should have should have put some Charlie Wood on here. <laughs> Why didn't I? I'm looking at a list of, of um, stuff. Memphis is known, of course, for its horns and its keys, but you know there's yeah. a very specific sound. But you don't really hear of too many of the of, of what you guys were doing. Although you can't swing a dead cat in Midtown without hitting a horn player. That's about right, man. You know they're low key. Well, relatively. Yeah, I guess. You know. I you know. You, it's you know it's horns horns are not uh, essential for a lot of stuff. I mean it's the first thing you uh, it's the first guy you cut if the money's not there. You know it's oh we can't afford the horns. Yeah, or, lose them or the horn. You know. Yeah. But I mean, 
I understand that. I get that totally, you know. And I've been on things where, why do you have a horn player on this gig? Really? I, I just didn't get it. I don't know why I was there. And, and at the time, I didn't really know how to make myself indispensable. And that was one of those things that was kind of relieved when it was over. Well, when the Memphis Horns came along... And we played on all those records. Came along. They were always here. It seems that way. They're they're on a billion damn records. Oh, man, they're, they're sure are. They, and there's a lot of Memphis horns. I mean, Wayne and Andrew, God rest their souls, would would tell you. Well, it was just it was just uh, me and uh, Andrew. But I mean, you know, you look at those records, and I grew up going to the record store and looking at credits on records and and wondering who was who. Jazz. I was immersed in jazz for a long time but also just any records that I learned were recorded here I would wonder who all those guys were in the horn section Lewis Collins and uh, and Jack Hale and uh, Herman Green yeah and people who yeah. who weren't Wayne and Andrew who seemed to be on most most of those things but you know there would be five or six guys listed as the Memphis horns so um, but I got to play with Wayne Andrew many times, and and they were very kind to me. And, uh, you know, I remember doing a session, though, for Don Nix once, who I was a big fan of, still am, uh, in the eighth grade, you know. Uh, I was a big Leon Russell fan and Don Nix fan, and I knew there was a connection to Memphis. And uh, But later on, I got to know Nix, and uh, he had me come in for a session with with Wayne and Andrew to play on a record of his, and and uh, and I got there, and Wayne and Andrew were already there, and there were three chairs in the studio out there, and they had an, their ashtray in the middle chair, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I went to Don and I said, well, uh, Don, do you want to put the baritone on like later, or he said, what are you talking about? Said, Hell no, get on out there. I said, well, they got. You know, they got their ashtray out there. Yeah, what a disturbing. So he that. just went out. You know, they were they were either just nonchalant about it or they were fucking with me or whatever. <laughs> so it was fine though. It was, it was great. I mean, they were never. So you were in the Memphis Horns then? No, no, no. Uh, that you'd get sued for saying that. You know, they had a big lawsuit. Did they really? Mitchell, yeah. Uh, or Al Green or something. Al Green did made a video, a live video, and he referred to his horn section. Oh. Who he might not have even known their names, you know. Oh, so he just said Memphis Horns, you know, and I think that's that was the origin of that. But yeah, they they kind of brought a little suit against Willie and them. So, and that perhaps provided an opening for some horn players to work at Royal Studios. <laughs> Willie didn't want to see their faces for a few years. <laughs> Wayne and Andrew were not going to be around for any of that. Yeah, he did He did <clears throat> let Andrew back in there because I don't think it was Andrew's doing. <clears throat> but um, Andrew was very sweet. I got to play with him with Randy Haspel some because I played with Randy. I kind of got to play like the Memphis Horns lines on songs with Randy because... You know, before the Big Chill and before the Blues Brothers or whatever, when 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 soul music became popular again. Yeah. So Randy, it was always popular with him, you know. So before those those movies came out where people were interested in it all over again, uh, he was playing that stuff. And I had heard it growing up, you know. I got an older brother, so 
I have a lot of musical influence from that and his record collection. So I kind of had heard these horn lines all my life, and you know, they were easy to to bring out in the band there. And Donnie Bear, the guitar player, would like play the trumpet line. He would like he liked to play horn lines on the guitar. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, after uh, I don't know, I started playing with other bands. I've always had this problem. I'm a musical slut. But uh, I started playing with other bands, and and Haspel's like, hey, man, are you going to play with us or these Blue Beats or this Johnny Singer in the Highlights or this Moroccan Roll? You know, there's all these bands in the early 80s that I I played with. And uh, I said, well, man, you know, okay, fire me. No hard feelings. There never never, is. I've never been uh, upset about being fired because... It, it was usually me kind of just showing up and playing the gig and not mayhem. I would lose my enthusiasm and then I would lose the job, but that's okay. Um, but anyway, Andrew replaced me in, in Randy and the Radiance. So that was kind of an honorable thing. And that then, is kind of honorable now that well, I think about I it. Would, I would go sit in with him or whatever and we played a lot of things together and, and just Andrew and I have done sessions together that were a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds like it would it would be working with that kind of thing. Do were you guys like responsible for writing the charts then for yourselves or did they did the other guys in the band would like well we want horns to do, hit these lines and and hit these pops or Well, with Randy, I mean it was just it was mostly covers and stuff. But but yeah, we recorded some some uh, original stuff Randy in the 80s at Sun. Yeah. And Rufus around the same time. Um and uh, it was kind of a combination. Like, how about this? Da 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 da. Or they'd go, well, why don't you go da 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 da? All right, we'll do that. You know, so. Okay, oh, yeah, there's a- I like to collaborate with whoever the session is for. I mean, some guys are really good at arranging, going, you know, getting the song on a cassette <clears throat> or, you know, an MP3 and going home and like, here's some horns. Here's what I hear the horns to be. Right, and sometimes it's it's pretty obvious, and you can do that. But um, I, you know, I'm used to going in and just like, what do you want? Well, something in here and something in here. Okay, how about this? That sounds good. How about less notes? Okay, and we, you know, work on it. Usually, me and a trumpet player, because I mean, I've come up in this economic time when uh, it's kind of changing, though. I mean, now there's more horns on a session, but I. It used to be just one or two. Well, now I mean, I mean, when I started, it would be like me and another, me and a trumpet player, and then I'd bring a baritone too. I'd play tenor. We'd play tenor and trumpet on one track, and maybe two tracks, and then just a baritone on the on the third track, and then you got like like five horns. But there's something about hearing, uh, you know, if it's all fleshed out and you're hearing five different voices, yeah five voices but you can kind of tell when it's the same guy doing this oh just by the way they play yeah Yeah, Yeah. you can just kind of tell i don't know but that was the not to be cutting horn players out of money but it was the economic way for somebody to to put horns on a record rather than just a couple of horns uh you did a bunch of stuff for this guy uh uh man ron levy you know that name I think I've heard that. Name. He's uh, he's produced a bunch of blues stuff in the I guess late '80s, early '90s, 
and we used to work over at the studio on Cleveland. And uh, Rusty McFarland was our our contact, our engineer contact. He worked real fast, man. It was great working with him. Um, nowadays, working fast is you play something on the verse or say the chorus, and then you know you. Uh, reach down to get a glass of water and they've put that on all the choruses. Yeah, know, they just repeat the, the choruses. Flowing you yeah. around and sometimes that's cool if you want to just get out of there and get paid but if you're more invested in what the music is about, you know, you kind of want to just go through it and, and do it. But anyway, um, Rusty would have ideas, we would have ideas. It's just a relief when you go in for them to go, okay, we want something like this here in this song and you you, you say, like this, and they go, well. And then there's this one producer I always think of. When we came up with, like, the perfect thing for this part of a song, and he goes, no, no, that's uh, try something else. So after four or five try something else's, and this probably happens all the time, but... You know, the trumpet player and I, we just kind of like, let's do, let's play that first thing we played. Yes. I know. And the guy, yes, I, the guy loved it. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I know so, exactly. So I worked with him again once. Yeah. Can't, can't say his name because he's an awesome dude. But I worked with him again and he kind of did the same thing. And this right. time, which was probably, well, maybe not the last time I worked with him, but one of the last times I worked with him, I go, oh, you mean you want what we played the first time? Okay, sure. Okay. So, you know. You uh, outed yourself at that point. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd, but I'd had it, you know. I mean, you know. I, That's happened to me as a as a voice actor, a voiceover, is that I'll do multiple takes. And, yeah. you know, you, you send them one, they go, no, 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 d do another one. You do like two or three, and then the fourth one is the first one. Right. And then we'll go, That's perfect. That's yeah. what I was looking for. It's like uh, I've seen this video, uh, Leland Sklar. Yeah. And I met him once, and I heard him talking about this, but there's a. He's on YouTube or something explaining that he's got this switch on his bass. Yes. That when the producer says it's to this or to that, he goes, okay. And he makes sure that the guy behind the glass sees him flip the switch, which is connected to, to nothing. It's a dead switch. Yeah. Yes. I've heard him tell the story. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's just, and they go, well, that's what we're That's what we were for. looking for right there. Oh, it's so funny. But, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I these, uh, there's, great guys these days man that that really are tuned in and they are they're really over all that that bullshit stuff exactly uh, i was gonna the say the guy that i mentioned before i always thought that he was he'd come to memphis gotten a good studio and he was probably getting x amount of money to to produce the record so he had x amount for horns and he didn't want it to look like the horns just were going to get in there and get out. I mean, get in there, play what they needed to play and get out. He wanted it to look, he wanted to spend more studio time, you know? Right. And uh, make make it look a little more effortful on paper than it maybe should have been. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, Jim, we're going to take a break here. Um, All right. When, when we come back out of this, I was going to get into a couple of the tunes that you sent over. Okay. Um, like uh, Joseph Patrick Moore. Joseph Patrick Moore is up the stairs. Jazzy, it's jazzy. Yeah. I, I thought I would stick a jazzy thing in. I'm, I'm just gonna go, kind of go through the list here, through the through top to bottom, really. Uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins will start it off well, with that. Yeah, <laughs> shut your mouth when you sneeze. Yeah, man, it's good advice. Radio Memphis. 
more at Radio Memphis up the stairs for the Never Neverland record featuring Jim Spake on the horn and sax. Um, I had a, uh, a thought a little while ago um, about, and it, you kind of remind me of that. When I was working in corporate radio, I was a never say no kind of guy. Yeah. Didn't, I didn't say no to anything. I was like, yeah, let me do it. I'll take care of it. I'm, I'm, I'm there. And it wound up biting me in the ass, well, as it often does. And, you know, people would tell you, if you want to make yourself, you know, you know, indispensable enough, you always take on those jobs no matter what they were. But you did the same thing. Well. But it so didn't really didn't really bite you in the butt either, you know. Well, I mean, something always leads to something else. You hope. Well, that's what I thought. You know, yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, like I say, I was lucky on that. A lot of things didn't lead anywhere. And um, ultimately, that thought, the school of thought led me to this, which is good. So. Yeah. So there's that. It took a while, but, you you're, know. You're not working for the man. You're the man. I am the man. So, and the boss is an asshole. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm I'm kind of just a freelance guy, and, and that's okay. Uh, you yeah, because you, you could have started your own act, couldn't you? Yeah, but I, 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 you didn't I, do I it. never really felt like, uh, you know. I wanted to do that. I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. Maybe it's early on learning that, you know, you have to be able to do anything. You know, you got to be able to sight read, which mm, I can sight read. Or fake it well enough. Yeah, let, yeah <laughs> let's just slow everything down and I'll sight read. But, um, no, I mean, I, I, I do play gigs where I have to read music and, and uh, you know, they still I have an charged. inferiority complex about it, but... Hey, I get to play with the Memphis Symphony big bands. Yes, man. Yes, and they're very tolerant of me, and uh, so <laughs> they're uh, pretty hip and guys. It's though. fun too, because because um, most of those guys are symphonic people. They have a, a few ringers like me in there, who kind of grew up improvising or whatever, and uh, so I get to play solos, and and it's actually a pretty good outfit, man. You know, we play. Play at Dixon Galleries. Play very, uh, very uh, hoity-toity joints. Yeah, kind of. You know, it's 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 you know dignified. I don't but imagine I don't you in a coat and tie pulling this off though either. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, some uh, the, the guy who the guy who runs the big band for the for the Memphis Symphony, Scott Moore, fabulous trumpet player, like all that legit stuff. Um, and he's. You know, kind of a decent jazz player too. He's not afraid to do it, and he's very good at getting up in front of the band and talking to the audience. Makes the worst jokes in the world, <laughs> loosens everybody up, yeah, and yeah. so it's fun to be able to, to fit in with all those people. But yeah, I mean, I, I just I didn't want I never have wanted to make my own record or anything because I know what. Uh, then you're the man. You're I know what records look like when you've got. 500 of them in your basement in these little brown boxes. <laughs> yes. And uh, and Johnny Phillips approached me because uh, I w was a founding member of this band, the Midtown Jazzmobile, back in 77. We played at Huey's every Sunday afternoon for almost 20 years. And um, You were at Tiger High at that time. Oh uh, no! I was, On the way I was, out, I was I was already dropped out, well dropped out by then. And uh, <laughs> you turned to pro at that point. Yeah, well, <laughs> sort of, but Memphis pro is different from pro. Yes, but, it is. Uh, but we made a couple of albums uh, at Cotton Row Studios, Ward Archer, 
let us kind of come in there and uh, we, we had a sort of a, a backer or, or for one of them. And uh, so then we've got all these records. Well, you know, you get a better deal if you make a thousand. Right. And a thousand LPs is a lot, man. So um, that's a shitload. That's, yes, it is. That's a lot. And they have been traveling around with me everywhere I've lived since then. And uh, but I saw Johnny Phillips uh, of of uh, what's his what's his thing? Selecto uh, hits. Selecto hits. Where I used to go look for records. Well, with yes. Mr. Adams up there on Chelsea many, many years ago. Anyway, I saw Johnny and he said, man, you still got any of those records? And I'm like, do I ever? <laughs> you want to buy so, them? <laughs> so, yeah, he, he <laughs> they told make me offer? to bring him some. I mean, you know, I took him like, uh, I guess, I don't know, 20 of each of the records we made. And uh, he's he's got them on Amazon. And oh, my whatever. God, really? Yeah, and I think... Maybe he's even got uh, the the tracks for sale, you know, like people buy the MP3s. Yeah, they buy the singles. I told him, I said, man, that music's pretty dated. I don't know. He said, man, if it's vinyl, they want it. Yes, I'm like, he's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, There's we, more where that came from. We learned that in all of vinyl sales, half of the vinyl sales is to people without turntables. Oh, man. That's that's alarming. That's just part of this upside down world they just, they just want to they just want to have it they want to add it to their collection of records in the basement the brown come box. see me because i've got a lot of uh <laughs> yeah. a lot of early Jim's gonna 80s, have a garage sale i think <laughs> early 80s uh i guess you'd call it uh uh you know pseudo jazz records for you i don't know jazz is you know i, I love it I, I i specifically like the older stuff you know um, yeah the older i get the older my tastes i mean i, get, I like the it's historically old stuff. You know? Right. You know, you listen to like Coltrane or any of those cats, uh, Miles Davis, maybe, um, Art Tatum, Thelonious Monk. I, oh, I, man. I dug that stuff. I still do. Yeah. Because nobody's playing that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, it's weird. You know, when I was in the, a kid in the 70s, I mean, uh, I was deeply into a weather report and would check the roots of that. You know, Joe Zalanul had played with Cannonball Adderley and yeah. Wayne Shorter, of course, played with Miles and Art Blake, you know. And so you you go backwards from where you come in, you know, and then, of course, Coltrane hadn't been dead that long and uh, all that era of stuff, 50s, 60s, right. up to the 70s. But then every year goes along, that stuff gets that much older. But then I got more into like Lester Young and and into serious early, you know, Fletcher Henderson, early early jazz stuff where I found these guys were playing such unbelievable stuff, man. Uh, Coleman Hawkins, 1927, was playing stuff that uh, I, I still can't believe. Yeah. So, yeah, jazz. I mean, you know, some people. I don't like jazz. They've never. Heard I don't it. hear the melody, man. I don't. There's no. Uh, They've never listened to it. So you know, but that's okay. It's not for everyone. Um, when Maynard Ferguson used to come around uh, the, the 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 city I lived in, I, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I saw him two or three times. Mm. I was always blown away by that big band he carried with him. Yeah, and it was a kind of a small big band. You know, he only yeah. had like two or three saxes. <clears throat> And you know maybe maybe more trumpets back there. They had I heard him at Harding Auditorium. Two or three, and then you'd have like maybe a couple of trombonists. Yeah, um, they had, had a, a solid rhythm section. Big sound, and that was kind of a '70s thing. We we would aspire to that, I guess, in our jazz band. Uh, 
years in high school, uh, of course, the trumpet players would all damage themselves trying to play. Trying to play like stratospheric levels. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I do. But he had great players in the band. And, and uh, you know, he himself had interesting roots, you know. I guess he came out of like maybe Stan Kenton or... Yeah, he did. It was Stan Kenton that did, yeah. I think he'd play with a lot of... And he had a he had a sax player who's got a YouTube channel now, uh, Bissonette. Hmm. Uh, Greg Bissonette? Is it Greg? Greg or John Bissonette. He was a baritone sax player. Yeah. And uh, he's got a YouTube channel. Now. He tells Maynard stories all the time. Oh, man. Wow. And uh, he oh. and it's all about the glory days of, you know, Maynard Ferguson and the nouveau pop band that he that he came out with after the heyday of him. Huh. So, like, toward the eight, middle 80s, maybe. Wow. Yeah. I was out of him by then, but I remember they would, they, uh, they had, like, you know, they would do big band versions of, you know, pop songs and stuff. Yeah. That, you know, kind of brought... Oh, they did Star Trek. The theme from Star Trek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, it was it was awful. <laughs> but, you know, things that were awful back then, you know, even like just radio music, pop songs that I hated when I was a teen or whatever, I hear them now, and I don't hate them. I, I hear them more as like records and like the... the uh, wacky production or maybe good production i heard a record i heard a song on the way out here brandy you're a fine girl yes looking glass yes which was recorded on poplar avenue at tmi studios yes um but and it was just it's just the ickiest song but i don't know man i hear it now and i like it in this perverse way <laughs> the way the guy sings the lyrics is just so weird but i i like it yeah yeah, so your taste changes you get older, of course. Well, I mean, you know, I'm you're not, a little closer to the joke too. I'm not you know. going out looking for the vinyl album it came from or anything. <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, I, you know, the jazz thing is what I uh, was really schooled early. I mean, I learned to play. I, I played clarinet in eighth grade, and then ninth grade, I told Mister Terry that I wanted to rent a tenor sax and get some lessons from him. And he said, okay. And he just put me in the jazz band. I couldn't even play the thing. And uh, and there you are. Yeah, and there. Well, yeah, and and uh, so he was really cool. But uh, so so I was. Those were my like uh, jazz snob years there. Uh, but but I also we were talking about Leon Russell earlier. I never I never uh, my allegiance to uh, whatever you call Leon Russell music never wavered. Right. And I would I would preach his uh his wonderfulness to anybody who would listen and nobody did but um uh, then when it when i really did become uh what you call a professional musician uh <laughs> a seasoned veteran I, I i i realized that you know i know that i would be a better all-around musician if i kept kept the jazz thing going and uh but uh you know i was um, i was awakened to just pop music and weird pop music and stuff that people cut in Memphis and you know Dickinson Jim Dickinson used me on a couple of sessions and and I knew who he was because of my brother and everything and um, and Sid Selvage I'd heard since I was in high school at Procope Garden and, and uh, of course later Jefferson Mud, Mud Boy and the Neutrons and yeah man so so uh getting to work with him and and people kind of in his uh, range what do you call uh, 
I don't know, he's, hard, he's hard to describe. Yeah, but like, you know, Ch- Chilton, I eventually worked with Alex and had already worked with Tav Falco some. And, you know, I had big question marks over my head for some of that. But then working with Alex, I realized what a, a jazz head he was. And he was really knowledgeable about the stuff that I was rooted in and uh, that made it easier to get along with him and understand what what he was going for. He was really a good guitar player, too. Oh, oh, yeah. This is Monica. She's joined us. Hey. Welcome. You're not late or anything. No, no. Not at all. Not at all. We don't use terms like that. Right. No, we're just here. Yeah. Just doing our thing. You still uh, still playing with Joe Restivo? I play with Joe Restivo, you know, whenever I get a chance. He's so... uh, he does the Sunday brunch, I think, over Lafayette's. Yeah, I'm I'm doing that with him this Sunday, in fact. Oh, right on. So I'm subbing. He's for a blast. Yeah, that, he's he's a nice guy. He's he's uh, just a hell of a guitar player, man. Oh, and yeah. there's a guy who, you know, I mean, Memphis is great, but what's he what's he still doing here, man? I mean, he could be anywhere. Uh, but he has... What are you still doing here? You could be well, anywhere. Well, I mean, you know, I got a family. I <laughs> See, everybody's got the line, man. But, uh, you know, Bill Easley told me once, Bill Easley, we could talk about him. He he was a sax... He is a saxophone player, clarinet player, who moved here to... Uh, he was in the Duke Ellington band after Duke Ellington was dead, but he moved here to to play with Isaac Hayes mm-hmm. and try to get in on the stacks thing when it was a thing and I stayed here for several years and was a real uh, champion of jazz and a uh, mentor to a lot of young young and old uh, jazz players who's from New York but he told me uh, he's you know when he was moving away <laughs> to New York he said um, and this was partly I think him trying to get everybody to not just follow him up to New York because, you know, he can't help him. He's up there scuffling himself. He says, every city needs to have good musicians in it, you know, and and no matter where you are, you know, or what, no matter what city it is, you got to have the best musicians you can have, you know. So that was like a kind of an inspiring thing. It's like, because I had made many trips to New York and I'd lived in Boston that school year and, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not a competitive person, you know. I, I you know, yeah. I, when I was young, I used to dream about going to New York and, you know, where would I live and what the heck would I do to make a living. <clears throat> but like uh, here, it was kind of already happening, so it was kind of easy, and I'm lazy. So, so there you are. Well, I mean, yeah. Would Would you say that that at that point when stacks became a thing is when jazz left Memphis because it. It's hard to say that it actually fully left it, but it's not as big as it once was. It's not a jazz club in this town. Yeah, it's not. Um, And there used to be. I mean, you talk to somebody like Mickey Gregory, and he'll tell you that, you know, he grew up playing on Beale Street. And and he said, you know, Beale Street in those days was just pop music. Um, uh, People would come out, dress up, come out, and dance to songs of the day played by whoever and right. then after after it was over then the guys would play jazz in the club so he and he said blues was like you know guy out on the corner you know pretending to be blind right right he's very uh he was very funny about that and he'd play he ended up playing with isaac and doing lots of 
amazing stuff that Mickey Gregory. Um, but uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably yeah. I don't know how. Uh, by the time I came up, Sunday was always relegated. I mean, uh, jazz was always relegated to Sunday. So I, I got this gig, you know, when when uh, Huey's never had any music. I think they'd started having music on Sunday night. They had like bluegrass or something. And and uh, somebody who lived close to Huey's, George Caldwell, was tight with Thomas Boggs. Hey, what if we came in here on Sunday afternoon, you know, and played? just played not even any thought of getting paid or anything but uh we'll let you play on sunday and oh, then eventually oh, that, like they're doing you a favor right yeah <laughs> then the, the the north end i mean eventually we, we did get paid but north end had jazz on sunday nights for a long time and various other places i think now ernestine hazels has some kind of jazz jam or something that's hosted by a couple of uh more seasoned players, but it's it's set up to invite young players to come in, and um, really the jazz thing is like uh, you have to have somewhere to play it with people that are better than you, and you kind of have to do it in public. It seems like because you know, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, and uh, and there's not much of that left. You know, I haven't been to Ernestine Hazel on Sunday night, but. Uh, we talked to Joyce Cobb about that very thing. Yeah. You know, she had a club. Yeah. And she said part of the problem was that they don't drink. Right. They, right. they, they sip on a, a glass of wine or, or maybe a couple of cocktails, and that yeah. was it. Or a Coke. Or just order a, a round of water. Yeah, and they just sit know? and they're just taking the, taking the, the act that's and on the a stage. a lot of times that's, you know, the young people who can't afford to drink, but they want to come in here or bring their horn and sit in, and they're not really contributing anything to the bottom line of the club. Right. And that's had, the problem, uh, yes. I had Jake Shore, who ran Jefferson Square and North End, which is now Westies. Um, you know, Jefferson Square had a lot of music in there, uh, like almost every night. Joyce played there. The Blue Beats played there. Uh, Sid Selvage played, you know, regularly in there. And uh, we were trying to talk Jake into something, having a jazz night or something. And he, he went and got his books. Here's how much I spend on ketchup every week. Okay, that's my ketchup tab right there. Oh, my God. And I'm like, okay, man, I get it. I, get I see it, where you know? you're going, yeah. And that's kind of when I stopped wanting to book anything myself because, I mean, I get it. You can't make any money off of what I think I want to play in your club. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I was not. And the cover charge went straight to the band anyway, didn't it? If there was one, yeah. Oh, really? I guess, you know. And I don't know how I don't know how cover charges work these days. You know, sometimes you know that all you're getting is what people are paying at the door, and then people go, "Hey, can you get me into your gig?" Well, exactly. uh, yes, that exactly. I was playing at Rail Garden, and I and I told my wife to come by for something. She, we had people in town or something, she, and uh, she was with some folks, and uh, this really cool, funny guy that works the door. The fence or the gate. What's uh, <laughs> the gate at uh, <laughs> at the rail garden? And and she said, "Hey, my husband's in the band. Can I can I get any free?" I think I told her, you know, just tell him I'm tell him you're w with me or something. So she actually did that. She's not one to to try anything funny, but she did it. And he goes, "Don't you want him to get paid?" I mean, he like he like gave her this 
Real. Wow. Don't you, uh, don't, don't you think the band should get paid? If your husband's in the band, don't you think, you know, that, that uh, where do you think this money goes? He was really just fucking with her, but <laughs> she was like, okay, I'll pay. No, he goes, nah, he's going in. But like, you know, it, it gave her and whoever she was with a nice little wake-up call. That's that's so funny. Well, we've heard from bands that, that continue to play on Beale, and the going rate is uh, 10% of the bar plus tips. 10% of the bar plus what? Tips. Tips. There's so, not there's not a guarantee. There's not a flat. There's not a, you know. Is that true, though? And, and uh, well, I don't know. I know which, of a couple of places that do that. Yeah, <clears throat> I could see that in a couple of places. But I would think the bigger places. And I don't want to name names because I don't play there. But um, I have I have played there within the past couple of years at places other than Itabina. Itabina is cool because you go up those back steps. Oh, yeah. No, Itabina is cool. foot on Beale Street. But uh, but, he can uh, stay off of that damn street. No, no. I mean, you know, I have nothing against against uh, uh, what Jim Dickinson referred to as a government-sponsored liquor mall. Yes, uh, he is absolutely correct. But uh, but no, I've played. I've played with. Uh, it's probably been a couple of years, but I've played it. Uh, I can't remember the name of the place with with John Paul Keith, and you know there was a, there was a guarantee. There was a guarantee, but like. Him, for example, I don't think he plays there anymore. Uh, but his thing was, um, man, to keep the to keep the crowd here, I like to do like a two hour set up front, and then take a break, and then finish it out, whatever, and uh, just to keep the people there, you know. Yeah. Not take a break early, but not take a break after an hour because you know people leave, they go to somewhere else because there's so many other places to go. So he. He's a great entertainer anyway. So he keeps them there. And it's like, but you're welcome. You know, if you got to go to the bathroom, go ahead or whatever. And if you want to sit out a song or two, but he said, that's just how I do it. So I got it. I mean, I understand that. And he did keep the people there. And that's good for him if he's selling records or whatever. And it's good for the bar. That's kind of brutal, you know, in a way. In a bit. But that's why, that's why it works, though. It's tickets and T-shirts, Jim. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, it ain't on Spotify. That's that's the thing. I saw a thing just today. Uh, Snoop Dogg had had a billion spins on Spotify, and he made only twenty five thousand dollars. A billion spins. See, that's that's a bummer. That's sad, man. I don't know. To get that many spins and get that little money, you know. And of course, he's taking old strike. And how much do you think the guy who owns? Spotify? Spotify makes. Oh, a uh, shit ton. <laughs> uh, shit. A so, metric uh, shit know. ton. I mean, uh, yeah. those those subscriptions to that uh, can't be uh, yeah. amounting to nothing. True. But it's, it's a good deal for the consumer. I guess. Go buy the records. It's just yeah, that easy. I like to I like to read the liner notes, man. I like to, even though I need... Two pairs of glasses to read the fine print that's in there. <laughs> but yeah, better than what it was on a CD. Yeah, yeah, they had to really squeeze that down. God. Um, I'm going to take another little break here. Uh, on the way, I've got uh, some music with you on it. Okay, that you sent to us, including Linda Heck. Linda Heck, a thousand mistakes. Oh man, Linda Heck is something else, man. She reinvents herself every uh, couple of months, I think. But uh, it's been the '80s or. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the 80s. She had a great band called Linda Heck and the Trainwreck. Yeah. It had various people in it. 
many of whom I got to play with. I don't think I ever played with the train wreck, but I recorded stuff with her at Easley uh, back then. And uh, this is something she did. Maybe we did this at Doug Easley's newer place. I don't know. Uh, but it's crazy. And now she's, man, she's into just all kinds of uh, experimental music. Uh, let's say, and it's uh, she's awesome, man. We'll get yeah. Diane Price in there too. Yeah, Diane Price. We could talk all Keeps, night. About yeah, well, that. that's what we'll end it in that set. Ike Turner. I'm going to start with that. Uh, okay. I, I need a nudden. Yeah, man. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. It's I'll all talk, next. I'll talk about Ike a little bit. Right on. Radio Memphis. I need to
home of America's music in Memphis, Tennessee. This is Radio Memphis, a broadcasting service provided by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated.
sitting on it uh head of that uh linda heck who announces her presence wherever she goes yeah. and ike turner we're sitting here with jim spake who was on all those records um plus many many others uh cool stuff man ike I, turner ike turner i met him once at the uh i think it was the, it was the, uh handy's blues down there yeah the restaurant there next to uh, oh, okay down there on, on, beale street. <clears throat> on beale street and uh I was shocked at how small that guy was. Yeah, he's a little guy, and I think that, hey, all you short people out there, don't be offended by this, but I think that had a lot to do with his uh, attitude toward life I, and other people in it. My you know? my thought was that Tina Turner could have kicked your ass. Yeah. You know. I wonder if she ever tried. She might not, He might not have let her get close to the guns. But <laughs> I, I, We got to play with him, a horn section, and... and I was in, got to play with him at the Handy, I don't know if it's Handy Awards or something, at the Orpheum. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they gave us the three songs, and I, I, I did go home and kind of, uh, I think one was Rocket 88, which, of course, you know. The he, Jackie Brinston, you know. And, uh, and, and Caldonia, you know, uh, Louis Jordan. And, uh, so we played with him, and I was like, wow, man, we're playing with Ike Turner. And I went to his manager guy, and I said, hey, uh, here's my card. This was one time when I did. So <laughs> you had cards. I said, hey, man, here's if my Ike card. is ever like, in the neighborhood again, you know, in the area, man, needs a horn section, let me know. You know, I thought, this man, Ike Turner, you know. Oh, that's and, uh, funny. Because I knew how that he was a bad guy and everything, but he was nice to us. He was nice know, to me, I yeah. I we rehearsed that. or what. And uh, and he liked me. He I think he realized that I kind of was interested. I knew a lot of the background. I knew he was a talent scout, you know, for Sam and whoever else, and d really did bring a lot of people to Memphis to record that are household names now, you know. Anyway, um, so one thing led to another, and he t came to Memphis like the next year to finish up this record that he had been making at home, which that I need a, a nudden came from and, and put horns on it and put some drums on some stuff and did it at, at Royal. And he was friends with Willie Mitchell and, yeah. um, and James Mitchell was, was playing on there too. And, uh, so then, you know, the record came out, and he, he wanted a tour behind it, and so he came to Memphis again to get a horn section. And uh, and then we, we uh, <clears throat> said we would tour with him, and it was like weekends, long weekends, which became long weekends that weren't, they weren't filled up with dates, so we didn't make as much money as we thought we were going to be making. And one thing led to another, and my horn player guys kind of started losing interest, let's say, and <laughs> they dropping, were grumbling. That's dropping what... <laughs> out, and uh, I was kind of left holding the bag. And, uh -oh. Um, oh no! I'm making the real short version here. So we had we had we had to carry three different zoot suits with us on the road. One was yellow. These were long coats. And uh, and we had to wear these black, well, 
pimp hats, and 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 uh, another suit was gray with stripes, and the other one was black with stripes, and uh, we just looked great when we played. But um, the the he'd cancel he'd cancel gigs, and my guys had already gotten out of their work at home, you know, to go out to do a weekend at some festival. So anyway. It kind of ended uh, in an ugly way, and I, I thought I might just have a nervous breakdown because he was leaving all these messages on my phone. And I, 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 I wanted, I'm the kind of guy, I've got phone messages on cassettes from all kinds of people who, who had <laughs> called me over the years to talk about whatever, but I, I couldn't keep those. I had to erase them because they were so scary. They were kind of threatening. Oh, really? and, and, uh, and then once Willie Mitchell called me and said, uh, Jim Spake, call Ike Turner. Because I wasn't really returning Ike's calls. And so he had gotten Willie to tell me to call him. <clears throat> so eventually I, I boxed up all the suits and the hats and sent them back to Ike in California. <laughs> washed my hands of the whole deal. And That's it, I'm done. I was really glad it was over. And uh, then he still, uh, like a year later, called me and asked me if I wanted to make a tour with him. And I said, well, I, I can't. I'm I'm really tied up. <clears throat> but, you know, and then he died. And that settled that. Yep. I've played on a lot of people's last records, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> the Grim Reaper of the Horn Section. Huh? The the Grim Reaper of the Horn Section. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, might, yeah. I might be bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, at least, you know, Arthur Alexander... He was all getting rid of NPR. They'd, somebody had paid off NPR. He was a big deal on NPR for a minute because they were going to you know, promote this record that he had made. Ben Vaughn produced it and uh, kind of recut some of his old songs with the old studio guys from Muscle Shoals who were then in Nashville. And it was a big deal, and he died. That happens. Anyway. Yeah, it happens. Well, it happens. From what I understand, we'll all be dead one day. That's what I, they keep telling us. Am I obsessed with death? No. Anyway, Ike Turner. Who else did we hear? Linda Heck. She's amazing. Linda Heck, yes. And the great Diane Price. Oh, my God. I got to play with Diane Price for 18 years, mostly around here in Memphis. She didn't travel much. She uh, lived above her mom and sort of felt this, uh, this uh, pull from her mom. I think her mom was some kind of puppet master or something. Kind of an overbearing soul. Well, kind of. I don't know. I'm How dare you sure. get into this music business? Yeah, well, but her mom had all those 78s. That, that, uh, and when I first met Diane at the first session I did with her, you know, my questions for her were, uh, where are you from, Memphis? And why aren't you famous? Well, <laughs> but maybe her mom didn't want her to be famous. I don't know. But her mom was at the session, and she kind of seemed like she was helping produce it. You know? Oh, really? Like we would all we take we'd, everything was live, and we would uh, would say, "How was that?" And mom would go, "That's pretty good." So we'd do another one, you know. And then mom would would nod enthusiastically or whatever, and we'd kind of gauge our our stuff by her. Anyway, Diane Price, I mean, I don't know where to start. She was just the real thing. Uh, she, 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 uh, that was the music she knew. And she would throw in other things, though. She used to do uh, a Lyle Lovett song. She would do, uh, what's that, uh, Jimmy Rogers 
I got a feeling kind of blue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovesick blues or whatever. Yeah, lovesick blues, yeah. And uh, she was great. Okay. She, she was good. I have a technical question for you. Okay. What do you think about plastic reeds? I use one on the baritone sax unashamedly. That's all I got to say about it. I can't make them work on anything else, but the baritone, baritone reeds are so expensive, and reeds are so expensive. Hope Cliburn was down here and talked about that very same thing. Man, it's crazy. I mean, I don't see how a young person with no money can get into this. She said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of gave up, you know, a chunk of her life. She said, my my whole bottom lip is scarred Hmm. from biting that, you know, biting that thing with with the reed to try and get some sound out of it. Man. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I use them on baritone, but I, I can't make it work on anything else because of you know a r- old school read isn't going to last very long maybe what a couple of gigs no I mean I, I could squeeze a lot of life out of a, a cane read but uh and then you get to shave them you know yeah I mess with them a little bit if, if they need it and sometimes they are uh the um, <clears throat> fibers in them kind of stick up a little bit and that can hurt so yeah a little little sandpaper or they have this sharp little tool called a reed geek you can use to kind of flatten it out yeah smooth it off do you use the metal mouthpiece uh i used to exclusively they have kind of a sharper sound to them don't they well i don't know it can be warm yeah every time i've changed mouthpieces i'm 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 wanting it to be comfortable and sound good through all over the horn and consistent over the horn. And when I get a mouthpiece, whether it's metal or hard rubber or plastic, I guess, um, uh, when I get it going right and I hear it back, it just sounds like me. I, I don't, I don't know. To, I can't. Do you have to break that stuff in when you? Yeah. Well, you, you. I think your throat and your mouth chamber get used to. Uh, they have to change to the mouthpiece. You know, because like uh, a lot of stuff going on in inside your oral cavity <laughs> and uh, and your throat. You know, mainly maybe mainly your throat. Throat has to be really open. Yeah, I mean big. You know, sometimes uh, people go, "Are you okay? Your throat is so big when you're playing trumpet players, especially man. They sometimes you have a blowout, man. I think Michael Brecker." Busted something in his throat, and he had to for a long time. He had to wear this like, kind of a collar, collar, yeah. You know, but um, you know, it was Matt Bissonette, by the way, from with Matt, Matt Bissonette. Yes, and he did a thing about circular breathing. Oh yeah, and that's some dark art right there. It is, man. Roland Kirk, Jesus Christ, and a lot of people. Roland Kirk, to me, uh, he just used it because he didn't. He didn't want to take a breath. He he his he was flowing so much with ideas that he didn't want to stop to take a breath. It seemed like to me, and and uh, our own George Coleman, he will do it a lot. But I think he like a lot of people, uh, maybe do it as an effect. They get something going, and then they they you know like a pattern that they repeat and repeat, and then they do that circular breathing. They keep it going, and it's like. You're kind of just getting people to go, well, how does he do it? It's like a circus trick, yeah. yeah. So uh, I do it when I'm 
maybe reading a piece of music and there's a I got to play a long time without taking a breath. I don't know why they wrote it like that, but you know, and it's exposed or something. I can kind of sneak some of that in sometimes, but I don't. And the, the concept of that for those that are uninitiated is is by basically filling your throat full of air, and you're playing your, through that while you're cheeks, inhaling in your cheeks. Yeah. So you can breathe. You have to breathe. You have to have good nasal passages. They have to be clear. Uh, you breathe in through your nose, and you, you kind of store this air in your cheeks like a bagpipe or something. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a, it is a circus act, but it's a balancing act too. With it's a Kenny G act. Yeah. Yeah. Because he he. Yeah, I got to of... I got to meet him briefly one time. He's an interesting dude. Well. I guess. Say what you will about his music, but he's an interesting dude. See, I think that in reality, he doesn't take himself so seriously. I mean, I hope so. But um, <laughs> I was uh, my friend Joe Mulheron, who got me into so many gigs yeah. over the years. I mean, Levon Helm, Jerry Lee Lewis, Brenda Lee, Bruce Willis. Uh, we were playing with Bruce Willis in Seattle at a Planet Hollywood event, which is all we did with Bruce Willis. That's where I saw him, at the San Antonio Planet Hollywood. San Antonio, Texas. Really? Yeah. Because I might have been there. He was doing the whole Bruno thing. Yeah, because we, we stopped doing it in about 98, and, and Joe was still doing it. I know uh, we were there... Uh, was it possibly, was there possibly a uh, some kind of NBA uh, all-star game going on? It may have been. And it was the grand opening of the Planet Hollywood there where I met him. Well, anyway. Him and Arnold. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Who's another interesting And then dude. that other guy, that Italian guy, uh, Sylvester Stallone. That guy. So we would play these gigs, and there would be all these stars there, and sometimes they would get up and sing, too. Uh, <laughs> um, and Bruce uh, was a fairly decent harmonica player. He, yeah, he's not bad. Uh, but, you know, we've got enough harmonica players to last forever. You think? I think so. Okay. But anyway, so we're in Seattle, and Bruce uh, would would be like, uh, he kind of wanted to be a regular guy. That was his thing with the bands. Yeah. You know, didn't hang out with the band that much, but sometimes a little huddle before the gig, and he was—he said, uh, "Hey, we're in Seattle, you know, and Kenny G is going to sit in with us." And, uh, <laughs> and everybody in the band just kind of rolled their eyes and went, "Oh dear like, God, oh, man, are you serious? <laughs> are you kidding me?" Because you know, it's—it's—you uh, got to—you're supposed to hate Kenny G. So anyway, so. Um, so I kind of said, so it was like, what, what's he going to play on, you know, of our songs that we do? And, and Bruce was doing this, uh, uh, um, uh, mixed up, shook up world. What's the guy's name? DeVille, Willie DeVille song. Right. Okay. And, um, and I said, well, that would be a good song for him to play on. Cause it's kind of, you know, Latin feel rather than like. Blues, rock and straight roll. ahead, blues, rock and roll. Like yeah, Kenny G, would, four on the floor. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a kind of a, you know. and uh, they said, okay, that's that's the one he'll play. And uh, so Kenny G comes up, and the crowd goes wild, and and we play the song, and it's like uh, they sing, and then it's time for Kenny G to play, and the song was in E, which 
it's no big deal. It's just a key because every, you know, everybody plays an E because it's kind of a guitar key. And it's common. It's not the most, you know, for for people who never play. It's you know, it's a saxophone key or an F sharp. It's kind of ooh tricky. But if you play music, you know, E is nothing. And then it modulates to G. So anyway, we Kenny takes the solo or whatever, and it's in E, and he, he kind of turns around, and I, I swear I want this to be a joke. <laughs> and I think it's, I'm, I'm just going to go with he was kidding us to make fun of himself. He turns around and says, you got me playing in fucking E? <laughs> and we were just like, ha, sure, sure. And then, and then it modulates to somehow it goes to G. You know, and, uh, and then he turns around and gives us this all right look, like a nod. Yeah, we're there. Going, yeah, yeah, thanks. You know, you changed it for me or something. And I, I just want to think it was all, uh, he was just being funny. Because he wouldn't, he could play an E. I mean, God, of course he, plays he had. So many notes. All the time, there's and it's all it's all in the soprano sax too. You yeah, know? I mean, and I love playing soprano sax, and I, I got a soprano. I was I was I'm telling you, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Uh, I got a soprano sax when I was in high school that I still play. Oh wow! And that was a whole story there too. Um, but anyway, um, and I've grown up playing it along with my tenor, you know, and and uh, trying to emulate idols and stuff. Not Kenny G, but and then uh, he comes along, kind of, and uh, it's like you know, you know, people see the soprano sax, and if they know what it is, or even just seeing it, they're like, oh, Kenny, Kenny G. G, yeah. So it's not that I don't play it anymore, but you know, it's just. But tenors he where took you're something at. away from me. Every, every time I've seen you play, it's always on the tenor. So I'm a tenor sax player. I, I was playing alto when I was in here with the Lucky Seven. Yes. Because we didn't have room in the in, in the space in the room for yeah, anything no room bigger. For tenor, got to play the alto. <laughs> no, I just I used to play alto with Lucky Seven, and then Hope came in, and she was playing tenor, and that's not really her first instrument. And I was kind of tired of playing all these uh, alto melodies of all these familiar songs that I've played like four hundred and fifty thousand times. And I said, Hey, why don't you know you play alto since that's kind of your thing? And I'll get over here in the kind of the background and play tenor, which is my comfort zone. Yes. It's worked out well since then. So. Good, good. Yeah, Hope's got some cool stuff coming, she's, too. Her, her new awesome. record is really good. So. Yes, yeah, she's got a big uh, show coming up. At uh, the Green Room. At the Green Room. At the Green Room. Is that Saturday? Mm -hmm. This Saturday, yeah. That's right on. You should go in there and crash it. Green Room is great, man. Yeah. That place... What a great place to hear music. It's a good venue. And all kinds of me. I've heard so many different things in there. It's just, uh, wow. It's a listening room. It's a listening yeah, room. Exactly. We were talking earlier, no jazz clubs, but that's about as close as it gets. Yeah. And, yeah. hey, 20 bucks to get in or something, that's not so bad. You know, See, go there you to, go. The, go to New York. and The Jim Speck combo will get you a drummer and an and a, and a upright bassist and a piano player. and. Uh, I don't know if I have anything to offer. <laughs> don't but, sell yourself short, Jim. Oh well, you know. Yeah, no, you I'm know. Tall how. guy. Uh, yes, you are. <laughs> we'll pause. We got one more little set with you, and then uh, we'll turn you loose. How's okay. That? Will that work for you? Okay. You, you mind hanging out? Yeah, I'm, I'm here, baby. I've got uh, 
the Midtown Jazzmobile on the well, way. Well, I thought I would put that in there. It's kind of my beginnings, you know. Yep. 19A, very, it's, uh, but this, most of those, that record, I'm just talking, is kind of like uh, almost, uh, what do you call it, jazz fusion or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Something that I, that I actually wrote that uh, was more like just jazzy, I think. And uh, I'll get Sid Selvage in there. How about that? Yeah. Every natural thing. Yeah. It's all coming up next right here, Radio Memphis. Radio Memphis.
tree Each one with his own melody Singing all together without a beat Tell him what in the world makes it sound so sweet Brother B caught the bear with his hand in the honey Stung him all over till it wasn't so funny It's a law of a jungle man You got to survive tonight Everything wants to be alive Dead Selvage. How about that? <clears throat> Every natural thing. Sid was a natural cat. Yes, he was. I, I never got the opportunity to meet him, but every every story I've heard about him was just, you know, stellar. He was an interesting cat. He was, man. He was a sweetheart. He taught anthropology at uh, Southwestern at Memphis, yeah. at Rhodes College, and uh, played on the, on the weekends at Procope Garden on Madison and uh, later on other places, Jefferson Square and uh, North End and uh, was a, a, a real mensch. He uh, he carved his own path too. Well, and he started that Beale Street Caravan thing, which is yeah. turned into Beale Street Caravan. But He's a whole foundation he, that he had me. Yeah. He had me do a, a thing <clears throat> I was honored to do. Uh, he said, I wanted, want you to do a series on saxophone players, you know, blues saxophone players. So I, I allowed that to expand to blues and R&B. And it was uh, an interesting thing for me to get to do. I did my own, you know, research. And I just picked 10 guys that are on some of my favorite records. And 
What? It was fun. That's why I'm glad you came down here tonight with the, with the, with the records that we played tonight. So far. I'll talk all night if you. But you know, I've, I'm going to play the rest of what you sent a little bit later on. So. Oh. Yeah, you've you, you've got that. Um, we also heard in their Midtown Jazzmobile. I brought them up because of the history that that act was. F region. You wrote that, right? Yeah, I wrote it. I, and the F is the key. It actually is the key, but I was looking up uh, words in the dictionary. Something along the lines of, of like frenzy or something, because it's kind of a frenzied track, and I don't know, it's not a good title, but uh, it doesn't matter. It I've was, never read a jazz title based, that was. Yeah, based off of this lick that Sonny Rollins repeats in uh, uh, on some Impulse record in early '60s that he made, and uh, so thanks, Sonny. But uh, anyway, I think you're forgiven. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know that, that's a great him. record, though. Um, well, you know, it's a good it's it's good to uh to sort of take a photograph. That was what Sid Selvage's Peabody Records label was about. That's what he considered it to be, just sort of uh capturing stuff that was going on at the time. And um so that's what we were playing every week and uh we had these songs, mostly Gerard Harris's songs. And that band was Gerard Harris on guitar, Doug Garrison on drums, Sylvester Sample on bass who moved away for decades and now is back and still just amazing. And uh, George Caldwell on piano. Anyway. What year was that? Do you remember? That was like 80 or 81. And... Uh, Not long after you went pro. Uh, <laughs> I've been pro for years. I've been pro for years. Can't you tell? But uh, yeah, we we had played that gig for probably three or four years by then and had Gerard in there. That gig started with David Kowser, but uh, but he moved away or something. And uh, Gerard Harris took over for him, and that's when we started recording stuff with that group. And David just passed away not long ago. He did, man. They had, they had a nice uh, memorial for him at Blue Monkey on Sunday, and I, I was there, and uh, people were getting up saying stuff, and I, I was, you know, I'd known him See, David Kowser, uh, there's so many young people, and I'm calling young people, you know. Well, it's, up to, it's up to 35 or 40. Uh-huh. And uh, these people who only got to hear him in the last 10 or 15 years, and like, you know, they like kind of revere. He was very revered, you know, and I, I, I can see that. But I, I knew him way back when. And, and I couldn't think of anything to get up there and say I didn't have any stories, you know. Some people had stories and some people just tearfully, you know, reminisced. And I didn't want to do either one of those but because uh, some stories can't be repeated. But today, while I was making beef stew at the house, I started thinking of stuff that I could have said. So I'm going to, like, write his daughter who I met for the first time since she was five years old. Wow. Now she's, like, probably 45. But... Um, yeah, he was he was an awesome cat, man. He was, uh, yeah, he was a one of a kind. You know, one thing about your line of work is you get to play with so many different people. You know, as a sideman, you have worked with a lot of cats. I have. Hey, Jim, it's true. Um, what about Alex Chilton? What kind of experience you have with Alex? Well, man, Alex, Alex was a great musician, man. He was really a good guitar player and and took took music seriously even though it, always, it didn't always maybe sound like it you know he liked to have fun with odd covers and stuff um and he was 
I, like this is such a uh, corny thing to say. He was always nice to me. <laughs> I mean, I saw him make people cry, but uh, <laughs> but it was always nice to me. He never made me cry, you know. And and I was um, I was just uh, I traveled with him on the road some and and made records with him, and he was very organic in recording. It was usually everything live. And that was fun, and uh, uh, he liked what he got out of that, seemed to. And, um, you know, I got to sort of pick his brain a little bit about pre-Big Star stuff. I always figured he was he was sick of talking about Big Star. Right. And, uh, but I think maybe he wasn't. Uh, you know, I'd ask him about bands that were on the scene people that I'd played with later on, like Randy Haspel and Larry Raspberry, and, you know, ask him what he remembered about those bands. You know. So, uh, I don't know. He was he was a big jazz fan himself, and um, it, was, it was fun to work with, you know. He, uh, I learned a lot from him. But when we traveled, it was like uh, him in his car and me and the drummer in another car and the bass player in his car. It was the caravan the gigs, man. Yeah, we kind of met up in each town oh, and okay. yeah. handed in hotel receipts to him, and it was pretty pretty loose. Uh, I went to Europe with him once, and that was uh, an eye-opening experience in the dead of winter. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean he's. I, I expected to do more stuff <clears throat> with him. Kind of died unexpectedly. Yeah. yeah. So he was a jazz fan, then. Yeah, he uh, he kind of absconded with a lot of his dad's record collection yeah, okay. and and absorbed them pretty well. He was he was really knowledgeable. And uh, but the last big star, the only big star record he made in the studio, you know, with the guys from the Posies. Uh, yeah, I, w I got to play on a track with that with with Noki Taylor, and we were hanging around after the session, and uh, uh, the new big star was going to go play something at the Cannon Center, some kind of Grammy Naris thing, and uh, you know Jody was Jody Stevens drummer was leaving with the other guys. They were going to go sound check and and. Uh, they're like, Alex, uh, we're going to go sound check. And Alex is like, have fun. You know, he sort of had this carefree attitude, you yeah. see. So after they left, I said, well, man, isn't it kind of weird that these, these guys in the posies, I mean, like, they've completely dissected everything Big Star ever did, and they know all the harmony parts and all the guitar. They know all this stuff. <clears throat> I mean, isn't it? I thought it was weird, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, of course, said, no, they're great guys, and they're, like, amazing musicians, and they're fun to hang out with. And mm -hmm. So, you know, okay. He, he, was kinda, he always had an unexpected answer for something, you know, that was uh, something you could think about later. You know, so, I don't know. What you got coming up, Jim? You have, you have any... Sh you, 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 I know you, you're working like a dozen bands. Um, well, I'm, I'm on call. Well, I'm, uh, I am, let's see, what is today? Thursday. I'm, I'm playing Sunday morning at Lafayette's 
subbing for Art down there, Art Edmondson. And uh, I could get my phone out. Uh, offhand, I know that I've got... Uh, I'm playing with Wiley Bigger. You know, oh, Wiley yeah. Bigger, we know you know, Wiley. Bailey yeah. Bigger. Wiley Bigger. And, uh, some, a week from Tuesday at Lafayette's. Um, Lafayette's club of the same name in the same location where I heard Weather Report. Yes. Phoebe Snow back in the day. Kiss played that room once. Wow. Yeah. Really? That's what I was told. I believe it. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, and I know that I'm playing some kind of uh, Elvis birthday extravaganza that I do every year with a bunch of symphony people. And, you know, they usually have either a recording of Priscilla. It's really weird, man. I mean, hey, we all love Elvis. But uh, Priscilla will, will either, like, be there and say things into a microphone or they'll have a recording of her. And, you know, it's just Elvis fans come from all around. All around. They're getting uh, older. That just came in the other day. Yes. And then, uh, I don't know, I've actually got a New Year's gig with Logan Hanna, some private thing at the casino. I never play at the casino, but I have played with Don Rickles at the casino. You, That's something you can't you can't really put that in your bio. Well, I guess it could. you were you were in the Don Rickles act uh, as it were because he Don, he used to work with a band, didn't he? Well, yeah, he always had a band, and it was like uh, you know he didn't come out and sound check, but the music you get there early, and the music director would go go over the show with you, and you know it'd be. It, you got the bump, 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 bump. He always came out to this uh, Spanish-sounding trumpet, the thing. El Toro thing that he did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and then and then the guy would explain. Now, look, when we get here, Don says something like this, and then you, you know, something, uh, some slight toward the band, and then you guys all get up like you're going to leave, and then he calls you back. So that kind of stuff, man. Yeah, nobody does that anymore. No. I mean, no. <sighs> That was so cool. Just not got about three or four months ago, the Don Rickles YouTube channel came out. Oh wow! And they have one of the entire shows he did. Oh man! With that, with that like orchestra, in Vegas or I don't know where it was. Uh, maybe in somewhere I mean, in he California. Would, he would just come with his piano player. Maybe. Yeah, the, he, he well, has maybe a rhythm section, but piano player for sure. And it was and yeah, he had a big band in this. Not much music in the thing. Huh? He sang a Man, couple it of must tunes. Have been, yeah, he would sing. He would sing. I give you laughter for love. Yeah, like really, like straight cheesy, Vegasy stuff that was, you know, when he was coming up, or on the scene more. That was just what you did. That was part of your Vegas act. He was trying to croon. You know, yeah. I mean, it was just. I don't know, it was a song and dance act. Stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's it right there. Don Records Live. Where, where, where is it? That's on YouTube. Um, it should say on the, go down to the video where it's at. Full show where? Uh, that one? That's live at Mo, the Mohegan. At the Mohegan? Mm, that's, I mean, there's a ton of them here. Live. Oh, those are all new. Man, I got to check that out. I love Don Rickles. We need Don Rickles now. Well, sure you know, Dave Chappelle, okay. I love him. But Don Rickles, man, he was yeah, like such a equal yeah. opportunity offender, exactly. you know. If you played uh, with Don at the Mohican, it's there no. on, on the tube. <laughs> no, I think I played with somebody at the Mohican, though. Is that up in upstate New York? I believe something? it is, yeah. Isn't it the Or maybe the Catskills? Uh, I don't know. Uh -huh. I never made the Catskills scene. But Interesting. Jim, thank you so much, my friend. Oh, we've just scratched the surface. I know. We need to have you back. 
Well, hey, we, we, you somebody know. cancels on you, let me know. I'll come. <laughs> well, if somebody cancels come on you, let us know. Well, okay. you know, or if you walk off, a, you know, walk out of a gig. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Anytime. It's been fun, man. It's been, it's been great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, scraping the cobwebs out of my brain. <laughs> well, you can, you got a, an, an enormous library you can go through, and if you want to send some more stuff this way, we'll 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 take it. That's what we're here for. All right. Just want to say hi to Patty. Patty's Patty's listening from Syracuse, New York. From Syracuse, New York. Yeah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) He sure is. Yeah, he's chimed in our chat and everything. And we got we got another listener uh, up around Toronto that tunes in quite a bit. I know he's listening. He's a radio DJ up in Canada for iHeart. So these guys just know that Memphis means something, right? Yes, they do. Okay, that's great. Love it. Yep. I'm, um, I thank them. Yeah. The internet is pretty cool. It is. When it's like that. Yeah. You know, between all the naked people it and the can, cat videos. It you know. can be cool. All the clapbacks and yeah. Yeah, yeah. thirst traps, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I don't whatever even understand it, it. Echo chambers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, anytime, Jim, you want to come down, come hang with us. You know, yeah, man. We've always got something going on. It's fun down here. Um, out of the break, I am going to play some more music that you were in. Well, all right. Do we? Do we? We didn't do the Rufus Thomas song, Tim. Uh, you, your version of Rocket Eighty Eight. I don't think did we? Well, it's not the original Rocket. No, it's his version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got uh, Jim Dickinson. That's that's, uh, that's got Andrew Love and me on it. Oh, okay. Um, if I could fly with Jim. Yeah, Dickinson. Jim Dickinson. That's a nice one. And uh, those pretty wrongs. Oh yeah. Hurricane of Love. Yeah, that's Jody Stevens and his uh, partner in crime, whose name I can't remember. Those pretty wrongs. They tour around and do stuff. It's just a duo. Like a guy plays guitar and Jody sings. It's Jody Stevens. Yeah. They don't have that much of an overhead when it's just two of them. Yeah. They make more money that way. That's the way to go, man. Yeah. You horn players are so expensive and all. Well, you know. Me and a guitar player, we can we can come and play I, in your backyard. There you go, Syracuse. If the money's right, if the money's right, exactly. I got people I can stay with up here. Sure, you can couch surf all across the country. Well, I appreciate it, my friend. We'll see you next time. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Here's your evening news from our friends at FSN. From Feature Story News in San Francisco, I'm Ira Spitzer. U.S. President Joe Biden has urged Congress to approve billions of dollars for Ukraine, warning that not to do so would be a Christmas gift for Russia's leader. Biden met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House on Tuesday amid a funding fight which has seen Republicans refuse to support extra assistance for Kyiv. FSN's Nick Harper reports from Washington. Congress needs to pass a supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break the holiday recess before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. President Joe Biden says it's time to act. At issue, some Republicans are demanding significant funding to strengthen security at the US-Mexico border. Without that, they say they're unwilling to support new money for Ukraine. Zelensky leaves Washington with an additional $200 million, money Congress has already approved. But it's nowhere near the more than $60 billion Biden has asked Congress for. I'm Nick Harper in Washington. The United Nations General Assembly has voted in favor of a draft resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. 
More than three-quarters of the 193-member General Assembly backed the move, which was vetoed by the United States in the Security Council last week. FSN's Jody Jacobs reports from the United Nations in New York. 153 member states have voted in favor of the resolution, calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, demanding that all parties comply with their obligations under international law and the unconditional release of all hostages. But before the vote, both the United States and Austria tried to push for amendments to the text, which it says did not condemn Hamas, but this failed. Egypt, who tabled the resolution, told the General Assembly that the resolution is a very simple, clear and explicit one. And is long overdue, saying the killings need to stop. Resolutions by the General Assembly are not legally binding. New York's top court has ordered the state to redraw its new congressional maps, handing a major victory to Democrats ahead of the 2024 elections. FSN's Tony Waterman has more. The court has ordered New York's redistricting commission to submit the new map by the end of February, saying it had been derelict in its duties since the process stalled last year. It's believed the redraw could flip as many as six Republican seats, potentially helping Democrats regain control of the House in the 2024 elections. After the expulsion of George Santos earlier this month, the GOP has a slim majority of just three votes. Republicans have vowed to challenge any map they believe is gerrymandered. Tony Waterman, Texas. And in U.S. markets, the Dow and S&P 500 were both up half a percent and the Nasdaq rose 0.7 percent. From Bureaus Worldwide, this is FSF. Get plugged into Radio Memphis and social media. Like and follow us on Facebook. Plus, all your favorite shows and personalities have their own pages. We can also be found on Twitter and Instagram. Keep up with the latest happenings from your socially connected station, Radio Memphis. Do you like ghost stories, dark history, and tales of the paranormal? Then get on one of Historical Haunts Memphis' amazing tours. Either the Haunted Memphis Bus Tour, Haunted Pub Crawl, or Walking Ghost Hunt. Historical Haunts also offers ghost hunts and other paranormal events for spirits of another kind. The Memphis Brew Bus offers a Saturday afternoon experience in the local craft brewing scene for tastings, tours, and brewer chats. More information is available at historicalhauntsmemphis.com. Join us for a spirited night out in Memphis. Hey, this is Dave from The Dave Show, here to talk to you about Outlaw Television. The Outlaw Television Network was built to give independent artists a way to showcase their talent. So if you're a band, a solo artist, a comedian, or maybe you're an independent filmmaker, Outlaw Television wants to see what you got. All you have to do is go to outlawtelevision.com, hit the submit button, and submit your video for consideration on the Outlaw Television Network. So go to outlawtelevision.com and submit your video today. It's happening to you every night. One snores and the other can't sleep. It seems like there's no end to it. But now there's a quick and easy to use solution. A natural solution. Snore Stop. Try it risk-free today. Snore Stop was created and tested by a team of physicians and has been helping couples sleep for over 20 years. It is the number one selling anti-snoring medicine in the U.S. Snore Stop sprays or tablets are now available nationwide. All you have to do is call. It's time to try Snore Stop and make every night a better night for both 
both of you. Don't wait. Try SnoreStop, the number one selling anti-snoring medicine in the U.S. sprayer tablets. Call right now for free shipping and your 100% risk-free trial offer. 800-932-1745. 800-932-1745. 800-932-1745. That's 800-932-1745. When did your light bulb go off? We're talking about that idea you have for a new product or app. Listen, if you want to make your idea a priority, but you don't know how to get it off the ground, you call Davison, the one company with over 25 years experience and exclusive process that turns ideas into products and apps that are found in retail stores and online. Our team has helped tens of thousands of people just like you. Call now and ask for our free idea starter guide. We'll show you how to securely get started and protect your idea. Whether you have a patent or not, our process will get your idea ready to get in front of a corporation. Don't let your light bulb of an idea go out. Call Davison now for your free idea starter guide. Davison charges fees for services. 800-208-9876. Again, that's 800-208-9876. Radio Memphis.
with you wherever you go in the world. Look for Radio Memphis in the TuneIn app and share the number one station in Memphis with everyone you meet. We are Radio Memphis. Yeah. 
Radio-Memphis.com is your source for specialized on-demand content and original material. Make sure you bookmark the site and check back often for the latest from the only station in Memphis dedicated entirely to the indie music scene, Radio Memphis. The proceeding was produced by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated and originally aired live on Radio Memphis. Any offers or advertisement contained may not still be valid. All rights are reserved, and copyright is held by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated, Memphis, Tennessee. For more, look for all the RMOD players at radio-memphis.com.